I'm Dwayne Schultes, and in this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking to Dan Leonard. Dan is the newly appointed Executive Director of WeWork for Health, bringing more than two decades of experience in advocacy, policy, and public affairs to this role. He previously headed the Association for Accessible Medicines, the AAM, and the National Pharmaceutical Council, the NPC. Dan, it's great to see you, sir. All right. Dwayne, great to see you. And it's lovely to be here in D.C. It's a lovely day. Uh, I'm rather unlike normally. Yes. <laughs> Put it in a can or a bottle because we don't get these that often. It is a nice temperature and we'll take it. So We Work for Health is mm-hmm. somewhat unique in that it collaborates with a broad cross-section of many types of workers and supporters of the healthcare sector. How are you going to approach this new role? Yeah, thanks for the question. It's uh, it's an important part of the DNA of We Work for Health. It's also a way that I've always wanted to work in healthcare and and have tried to during my time in health policy which is collaboratively and the the key word being collaborate with the multi, you know with the stakeholders who are involved so you know we work for health has been around for well since 2007 and the mission you know has been to bring together uh, all of the various stakeholders who care about the pharmaceutical industry but also uh healthcare and the the, the cures that that we need to come to market for patients. So it's a, you know, it's a large healthcare in general is a large complex quilt of very, you know, multiple sectors coming together, but that's what we've been about is just bringing various sectors, including because there's a big economic story that we tell too, bringing bringing together uh, the business community labor as well uh, in the key States where there's a, a, an important pharmaceutical footprint. So, but at the end of the day, it's all bringing these players together to advance the interests of of patients. One of the things we've seen is an enormous increase in the centralization of clinical trials in the United States. You know, there's a big movement from Europe to the U.S. You know, that knowledge base, that infrastructure is so ingrained in the U.S. ecosystem. Are you hearing concerns from your membership about some of the music that's coming out of here of D.C. regarding a lot of the attacks on the sector broadly? Are, Are you starting to hear the folks who are working? Working at the coalface, getting these clinical trials, getting these things up and running. Are they starting to express <laughs> concerns as we're hearing from the industry players themselves? Uh, yes, absolutely. And you know, you hear it first from from industry because they're probably most directly impacted. But uh, it, it, it's filtering out into the the stream of consciousness, and we're hearing from uh, other sectors. You mentioned clinical trials. You know, we we also you know are tracking where these trials are being conducted and. You know, there's a lot of activity ex-U.S. that's picking up a lot in Asia and China sure. uh, in, the, in the trial space and uh, R&D, which is taking place outside of the United States and is growing. And, uh, you know, one of the themes is we should not take it for granted that we're going to ma- hold this position of, of leadership in the world when it comes to research and development in the in the healthcare sector. It's not always been that way. You know, and there are plenty of countries who would love to just step in and, and uh, take over from the United States and, and lead that efforts, which is one of the underlying themes of We Work for Health is, you know, America's biopharmaceutical industry fuels economic growth while bringing life-saving treatments to patients. So it's that nexus of what are the next breakthrough treatments for patients, but how does that also impact our economy and our ecosystem as a whole. If you look at what's been happening in the UK, there's been a 25% drop in clinical trials over the last couple of years. It's ironic. We are sort of taking, as you mentioned, we're sort of taking it for granted here yet in Europe. Now you hear all sorts of complaints. Wow, we've lost it. How did this happen? And it seems like people don't realize it until it's gone. It's almost like uh, an old Chicago song or something. Yeah. I don't think policymakers in the UK should be surprised. No. 
but I'm guessing they are just <laughs> just like we could be here in Washington, you know, in a couple of years if if things go you know, in the wrong direction because of some recent policy implementation. So you've joined We Work for Health at a very demanding time, which we are alluding to in our discussion now. Did you ever think we'd come down the path, speaking of Europe, where we'd see, you know, the implementation of EU-style price controls here in the United States? I mean, honestly, 10 years ago, when we were talking to people, we were giving people warnings at our firm. We were being called Chicken Little, and, you know, the sky is falling, and now uh, the sky fell. I mean, did you ever think we'd get here, Dan? If you're in this town long enough, you've seen this movie a few times already. There have been efforts in the past to move us in that direction toward more government expansion. Sometimes they have not succeeded, uh, some, and more, most recently they have. If you go back to the 90s, right, you have you had Clinton, Clinton Care, and uh, which was you know labeled as a version of single payer at the time, and lots of gnashing of teeth around that, and that one ultimately did not prevail but i just it sticks with me one of the messages that came out about that one was if if you think healthcare is expensive now wait till it's free yeah i'm sure sure you remember that one so that was you know the 90s and then we did have medicaid expansion as part of the aca and Mm -hmm. and, you know and that some people think that's been a great success but it's government expansion it's government getting a larger role in healthcare you know in the drug space we have from one of my previous roles where you and I have worked in the past, we look quite a bit at NICE in the UK and other value assessment entities around the world as they have tried to figure out how to price drugs. You know, we have tried to avoid that in this country, but we're, you know, we have certainly gotten closer to it with IRA. Essentially what we're doing through the back door now through the Inflation Reduction Act, we're putting in uh, essentially a hard stop on intellectual property and putting in a loss of exclusivity event, effectively genericizing the price of a drug, whether or not that's what's actually happening with the intellectual property behind it. Given your previous role at the National Pharmaceutical Council, the NPC, you're certainly intimately acquainted with what it actually takes to bring a therapy to market. Just surface level, a helicopter view, what risk does the IRA pose to patients regarding the development of new therapies? It feels as if policymakers and and others have become frankly, deaf or are ignoring the chorus uh, that the IRA and other policies like it um, could harm the innovation ecosystem in this country. We've touched on that a little bit. Uh, we, we cannot take it for granted that the U.S. will always lead in this, in this sector. And like I said, there are lots of countries who would be more than willing to, to step up and take our place. One of the ways, and this is a podcast, so we can be a little more casual. Sure. <laughs> there's there's an analogy that I've had in my head, and I've spoken to this a little bit, but it's I call it the the Jimmy Stewart effect or the George Bailey <laughs> effect from from It's a Wonderful, wonderful Life. Wonderful Life, yeah. Sure. So okay, here we go. Play this. Everybody's seen this movie a thousand times in December, but there's Bedford Falls in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. is doing well. I think if things are vibrant. Bedford Falls, a.k.a. the United States. Okay, uh, They're doing fine. Then innovation is growing. George and the building and loan are doing fine. Uh, and then an event happens. Uncle Billy loses the money. Mr. Potter comes in. Uh, and Mr. Potter, the analogy is that you know the hand of the government coming in and the IRA and things spiral downward until George goes off the edge. And then the town, kind of we've seen what happens to the, to the town. 
basically the story of you know you don't always know what you have until you don't have it yeah and you know i'm afraid that that this could be what we uh, are living through in the you know in the middle of this so that's a cheeky kind of look at this but it's another version of the goose that laid the golden egg analogy as well yeah or when biff takes over the town in back to the future <laughs> yeah right remember what that town looked like <laughs> so we want to avoid those things you know we may not know but we're already seeing some things that wouldn't intimate that we're you know we're moving in the wrong direction when it comes to advancing innovation in this country there's been an enormous pullback from a lot of the venture capital and small molecules we're seeing that this was already in reaction to the assessments that were made regarding the implementation of the ira unfortunately this seems to be just the opening salvo there's increasing there's an increasing of ratcheting up of the rhetoric on the Hill. We've had the Smart Pricing Act thrown out. Now we've got the Pallone bill. The Smart Pricing Act basically doubled the amount of drugs that would immediately go into negotiation. Now the Pallone bill says, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to do 10 in year one, 15 in year two, but then we go up to 50. Mm -hmm. So very quickly, you would basically negotiate everything in Medicare. What do you think the ratcheting up is going to do for the ecosystem now? If investors already had cold feet, where are we going now? Yeah, I mean, it would it would throw more cold water on <laughs> sure. you know onto an already pretty chilly bath. Plug to vital transformations. You guys have done a great piece of research that that we have been using. It we work around the implementation of IRA and then what could be uh, the future under Smart and now looking at Pallone, but uh, additional drugs being compressing the timeline. So you're basically compressing the the patent life of those innovative drugs to a point where it's going to be very difficult for people to make investments if they don't think there's going to be any return. And then you go to the next step, which is to calculate the number of, you know, the economic impact, the number of potential lost jobs, and the number of new therapies that may not come to market. You know, the high the high point, if SMART and IRA were put into play, your studies is up, up, up to 237 new therapies in 10 years. Yeah, all things being equal, yeah. <sighs> At a certain point, do you think there's ever a political price for harming the industry? Or is it still just, are the politicians just seeing upside right now? Is there ever going to become a point in the near future where the actual losses like we've seen? I mean, there will be losses. There's just no way around it. The investors will not invest. I mean, we released a podcast with Steve Potts recently, who's a very well-known entrepreneur who gave testimony in the Congress, uh, basically saying, look, you know, 85% of VCs are going away from small molecules. Does this ever transition to the point where the politicians start going, hey, wait a minute, we're going too far. You know, if you're in Boston, California, Raleigh, Durham, Austin, you know, these areas that, you know, have a burgeoning biotech sector and it's driving a large part of your economy. Do you ever start thinking, hey, wait a minute, maybe political expedience uh, is long-term damage here? It's possible. My fear is that by the time they realized that, it would already be too late. And you know, the innovation ecosystem wouldn't be in this country. It would be somewhere else. And that would be very difficult to get it back at that, you know, at that point. Um, you know, I'll, let's take a, a, a side route down the generic and biosimilars path. Sure. Because that's uh, an area I came from. You know, this is not just about uh, large innovative drugs that we're talking about. The impact on the small molecule uh, generic follow-ons is going to be even more devastating, and that's something that the I think politicians might f might react to and might you know be more you know awakened to if uh, if those affordable medicines start being less available. We are already seeing shortages. I'm not linking the shortages we're seeing today to IRA. They're mostly linked to the economics in the in the generic business. Yeah, the price pressures that are on the generics already. Exactly. So it's already a really difficult environment. 
double down and make it uh, this much more difficult for them, you're going to have more shortages and, and potentially fewer players in the small molecule space. And that's uh, probably would be mirrored in the biosimilar space. So right now, the politicians who supported IRA are, I think, feeling pretty good about it when they're out on the campaign trail. It still polls well for them. So I don't know what the tipping point would be, but it's probably not a pretty one. You bring up a really interesting point about the generics because the law itself, when the IRA was passed, said at the point of application, that was sort of the language. So at the time when the pricing controls were put in place, it was, was there a competitive generic or not? And that's what the law said. Now, CMS interpreted that quite a bit more loosely. And now you're seeing it even more loosely because drugs that actually have generics or at least generics ready to go were put on the Biden list you know, uh, two weeks, three weeks ago. If you are a generic manufacturer right now, or let's say you're a company going into generics and you're trying to anticipate when you're going to enter, not only are you causing uncertainty for, you know, the novel biopharma sector with type one therapies, you know, the novel breakthrough designation therapies, the new novel therapeutics approved by FDA, you're also creating an enormous uncertainty for the generic sector. Like, do we invest or not? Are we going to have a market? What's going to happen there? Because those margins are incredibly tight. I mean, that's an incredibly competitive sector Four or 5% net net margins. I mean, very small. These guys are operating on a knife edge as far as being able to make, make or break decisions here. What's going to happen there? Yeah. Well, you hit it right there at the end, the, the very narrow margins. Um, they would, you know, in most days they would, they would take four or 5% and, <laughs> and celebrate there. You know, it's just, it's difficult. Add into that now this new and added uncertainty that the, the, you know, the molecule they're trying to follow on may be negotiated by the government. So what the, all the calculations where they had the, you know, the, the price that they were going to peg off of is now 30, 40, 50% lower. And the timing of when they can come into the market through negotiation around the market exclusivity expiration. I mean, they don't, that's a movable feast now too. Yes. So, uh, you know, uncertainty is, uh, you know, is kryptonite for smart business decisions. So I th I'm afraid that the, the, the common response or the most common response will be, we're just going to take a pass right. because we can't see a, a, a clean line to, to the future. And so, again, patients will lose out. There'll be certain therapeutic areas that will lose worse than others, probably. Um, but, yeah, it's this added uncertainty in the generic space because it, it takes several years. It takes, in the generics case, tens of millions of dollars to yeah. bring one of these to market. Biosimilars, even worse, it takes 10 years to develop a, a viable biosimilar and $100 million, perhaps, you know, or right around $100 million for a biosimilar. And, you know, I think... We will not see another scenario like we have this year with, with Humira going um, off patent and biosimilars coming where we had six yeah. competitors coming. I don't think under this scenario you'll ever have that again because, you know, the, if government steps in, you'll never have that many characters, players coming to the dance. And that could actually lead to keeping prices artificially higher than they would have been if, if free market competition had been left to, to do its thing. And you already see a situation where the biosimilars and generics in the United States are lower priced than they are in Europe because just the volume play and there's more competition here. I, I don't think people realize that. I mean, the U.S. for the generic sector is way more competitive yeah. than the EU is. Kyle Bass calls this situation where you're trying to make a decision in uncertainty with low margins. He calls it uh, bending down in front of a bulldozer to pick up a dime. <laughs> <You> know, <and laughs> that's, that's, bas that's basically what you're dealing with here. 
we've seen a lot of lawsuit activity from the standpoint of a lot of the companies saying, Hey, this violates the fifth amendment taking clause. This is illegal. You're taking private property. There's a heck of a lot of uncertainty now around the generics, both for the, the originator companies, as well as the, you know, the generics and biosimilar manufacturers. I mean, this is just a mess. Do you think that this is going to be because there's such a lack of clarity between the law and the interpretation of CMS? Do you think this is a place where you're going to start seeing more lawsuit activity potentially? I mean, I don't know if we'll see more. There are already some very viable, uh, there's very viable suits that are out there. And a number of the manufacturers, the cham- you know, the U.S. Chamber and, and others have, have joined to challenge the IRA. From a practical standpoint, you can't sit by and just hope for the best. We have to, we keep working on the mission that we, that we're, that we have. But I think they're all very viable lawsuits that could, you know, change the trajectory of this, of this policy. So I don't know that there'll be more, but certainly there, you know, there may be other parties that should sure. pile on and, and file amicus briefs on behalf of some of these current suits, but uh, certainly a space that we're watching. Obviously, one of the concerns right now about the IRA specifically is the disincentivizing of small molecules versus large molecules. It's already tough. It's a tough, tough business and trying to get an ROI on a nine-year return on investment for a small molecule looks extremely prohibitive. Why do you think this difference got hardwired into the legislation? Again, putting on your MPC hat, you obviously are extremely knowledgeable in the discovery side of in the invention of new therapies. Why do you think this this occurred? How did this dispersion get in the bill? I don't know that it was hard, use the term hardwired. I think it actually came much later in the process. I'm talking about the differential between small molecules at nine years and biologics at, at late 13. That actually came in much later in the in the conversation last year. And you know, probably to try and appease the, the, the biosimilar sector or to make sure that this nascent sector was given a chance and wasn't unduly hit, but it really didn't make anybody happy. The, the extension for biosimilars really isn't enough time for biosimilar manufacturers to make change their decision or to develop a, a new strategy. Um, but it certainly hurt the small molecules. Uh, and so we're going to see, I think you've already alluded that less investment is going to the small molecules uh, manufacturers now. You know, we'll probably see you know, that continue. Also compressing that patent life for that innovator product. So you know, the new drugs will have to price higher to get back any return on investment in that shorter, shorter time frame. So it's a bad stew of things that are going on in that space and you know fewer generics um higher prices on the front end because government is likely to come in on the on the back back end end. the problem with that is you know if you estimate you know looking at some of the vc calculations they're saying somewhere between 40 and 60 percent you know let's say 50 of revenue lost in the small molecules i find it highly unlikely that given the controversy now you're going to be able to price up you know 100 percent at the front end to make up that lost revenue i just don't politically that's probably untenable on the other side on the 13 years the problem is you have data exclusivity until 11 years so even before your patents or expire before you can even start having the discussions about your your generic extension to know where you're potentially going to land in your discussions about your ip extensions that you would take in you're already being price negotiated i mean it's it's absolute madness i I, it creates such uncertainty at both sides of the balance sheet uh it's unbelievable that this is where we're at it does all of that and uh you know like i said a few moments ago it'll lead to fewer 
companies coming to to participate and develop biosimilars, for example, and the result of that will be less competition. We have seen, you know, when there's six or more generics in a market, the the price off of the you know the originator product comes comes down eighty to ninety percent. We've yeah. seen Torvastatins now, you know, ninety percent discounted off the. They're their, free, basically. Yeah, essentially, you won't see that again because you won't have six players. You maybe will have a couple, you know, because of this new pricing structure with government involved. Obviously, there's been some concern about the patent protections and some of the label extensions going well beyond 20 years after the initial NDA being filed. I mean, we see things 10 years of research and then we're seeing 20, 23 years. So we're up around 30, 33 years sometimes in total. We could see a situation where Hatch Waxman could maybe uh, be tweaked a little bit. I mean, essentially IRA is a backdoor solution to Hatch Waxman. Why do you think politically we didn't go after the problem and we decided instead to sort of bolt on a Hatch-Waxman solution into the IRA? Yeah, that's a good question. And the, the very, very short glib answer is because that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> fixing the real problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, fixing the real problem is difficult. Uh, you know, that being going after IP issues, um, that's, I think, where the direction that Congress should have gone. But, yeah. it, you know, they, it was not going to be an easy campaign year fix for them to to get to that you know i think hatch waxman as far as policy if we're talking about bad policy i think hatch waxman has been very good policy it's yeah. brilliant it's yeah. it's defined the sector for the united states yeah. it's been hugely successful as has by you know 40 40 years it's been running and it's not perfect but it has given enough for the innovators to to do their thing and to innovate and to bring amazing new therapies and cures for patients it has created a vibrant generic sector because they you know they there is confidence that they're going to be able to be in the market go head to head with their with other companies but it, it's it's been a great model where it has fallen short has been in the this fluctuation between yeah. the number of years where there's protection and that's all gets wound up in the in the courts you talk about a back door to Hatch Waxman. I, I think maybe it was a screen door in a submarine. <laughs> uh, but that's where they they should have been focusing on the IP, and maybe they will going going forward. But again, IRA was more of a I would say more of a political solution for the problem that they were solving, trying to solve for. But as we know in this town, political solutions rarely solve the core problem. Unfortunately, you know, often you need another political solution to solve the political solution. Yeah, or to unwind <laughs> your last solution. Exactly. Um, but I think you're spot on identifying where the you know where the real issues could have been vetted and worked out were in the IP area. The Biden administration recently announced their first ten drugs to be yeah. quote unquote negotiated as part of the IRA. Many people have known that we have strong opinions of this. Our article in BioCentury has been well circulated and it's caused a bit of a stir. But uh, a couple questions for you, Dan, on this. Were you surprised by the drugs that were selected? You know, first of all, lots of folks take issue with the ter- just the term negotiation. Yeah, of course. Right? Because is it, you know, is it really a negotiation when there's a gun on the table or there's the, the person you're negotiating with has such huge power? And the, you know, the implications of not participating are... 95 percent of your revenue yeah you're basically getting whitewashed out of the out of the program out of medicare entirely was i surprised by the 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 list i mean lots of people were kind of handicapping which drugs would be on the list which ones might not you know i didn't have a a set list that i 
thought were going to be on there. The administration and proponents of IRA are very quick to point out the $50 billion in Medi- that Medicare spends annually on these 10 drugs. So that's a gross number. That's the before rebate. It's really not being honest with the American people about what the actual price is for those 10 drugs. And so this is where you get into the whole PBM issue. But, sure. But it's definitely not apples to apples. I was a bit surprised that there was an insulin on the list because we just came out of a summer and a spring where $35 insulin was you know, was made a thing and, and was touted as it should be. So there was an impression that we already fixed that problem. Yet, and insulin. it's not just one insulin; it's a bundle of six insulins. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's not really ten drugs; it's actually fifteen, mm. and six of them are insulins. Yeah, that that caught us by off guard. I, I think for us, the logic became quite clear rather quickly, which was the basis of our article, which BioCentury picked up and did an interview with us in. If you looked at the drugs we chose, which we thought would be most likely selected based on the law with the idea of the greatest expenditure, very clearly says the drug should be ranked by the highest expenditure being ranked highest. That's the direct language from the bill, from the IRA, the law. We never really considered the amount of beneficiaries, the number of people who were the number of people whose drugs are sucked into negotiation. We never looked at that part. When you start looking at that, you realize we calculate about 4 million beneficiaries with all the cancer drugs. Half of our cohort were cancer drugs. The CMS Biden selection for the first 10 drugs, ergo 15 drugs, is 8 million people. So you double up the amount of people in the cohort by including a whole bunch of cardiovascular drugs. This seems to us to be much more about 2024's elections. That's what we thought. What happens if we start politicizing decisions, Dan? You're already taking something that's really uncertain, and now you're even throwing you know, more political uncertainty into the decision. I mean, what's going to happen if you're an innovator? Well, you know, I think, uh, unfortunately, that's a big part of, of, of what we saw in the passage of IRA. A great desire over many years. This is not, this is not something that just happened last year. <laughs> this is 20 years in the, in the making, yeah. this movie. It led to a frankly, a a talking point on a political speech uh, that the proponents of the legislation are are, happy to talk about and that they have brought drug pricing under under control using this model. Quote, unquote. Yeah. 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 But again, we're already seeing companies coming out and making pronouncements that they're going to avoid certain therapeutic areas or they're going to delay you know, work in a particular area or on a particular promising treatment because of the new dynamics here. So that's not theoretical anymore. That's not an, I say, it's not an unintended consequence when you know that that consequence is already happening. And it's quantifiable. It's quantifiable. And the the VC money that you referenced earlier is is readily quantifiable too, because you can see the spigot being turned off. You mentioned the PBMs and the situation where we're legislating drug prices on originators and companies manufacturing these drugs. But in fact, a substantial portion of the revenue, according now to several studies, up to 60% of the gross revenue is actually controlled by the pharmaceutical benefit managers. Can you explain how PBMs function in our current system, Dan? No. (laughs) Fair enough. No. (laughs) Next question. Uh, well, that's part of the problem. No one really can, sure. right? That's And that's how they have um, succeeded, which is not the right word, but how they have grown is because there is so much, you know, so they're so opaque in how they operate. And they've done reverse mergers now where they're not even publicly listed companies. You can't even go to a 10K form. You don't even know. Yeah. 
it's interesting. We talked about the $50 billion being the gross number. I don't think you could find anyone in CMS who could tell you what the net number is um, because they currently are, they're using the PBM model f- for their negotiations in Medicare now. Because of this lack of transparency that, uh, you know, that we're kind of in this place that we are, whether we have seen amazing or massive growth in the companies, the, the PBM companies and those that own them, which are now conglomerates of insurance companies and pharmacies and quite uh, a bit of vertical integration in that sector. Yeah. Yes. And the distributors <clears throat> as well, which are really, really important in the generic space. Absolutely. And those companies have grown, you know, this is a, just a factoid, I guess, but of the, in the fortune 50, there are nine PBM companies, that, this conglomeration of insurance and, and PBMs and distributors. There are only two pharma companies that are in the Fortune 50. I think when you tell people on the street that data point, they're surprised by that. It's difficult to, to describe and to explain, but it's uh, finally getting a little bit of attention on, on Capitol Hill, and I'm, I'm optimistic that we might see some positive developments. There's a lot of legislation currently floating around this town about regulating the PBMs. What's the crux of the various proposed legislations as they stand right now? There's a couple in the Senate. There's like three or four in the House. What's the main objective? What are they trying to do? And they're all slightly different in all sure. these various committees. So there's a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of a internal battle going on right now as to where which packages will prevail or which committees will prevail. You know, at the heart of most of them are um, increased transparency, which would be, you know, which is a a good thing you know some are trying to get at spread pricing eliminating spread pricing which would be good uh increased oversight uh, which we really don't have very good oversight now that would is part of the certainly the senate senate finance is uh is probably the furthest along in their work and they have a pretty significant oversight component and uh relief for the community pharmacists we haven't talked about the yeah you know the at the the delivery side, the end end of the chain of the pharmacists. Which are your members at WeWork for Health. You have yeah. a substantial membership of those people. They're very active with us in the States and they're, um, you know, have been really disproportionately hurt through sure. PBM practices over the many years, the, particularly the community pharmacists with the DIR fees and other things that impact them. And the consolidation directly. with uh, the CVSs and the Walgreens and the very large players. Yeah. So if you're competing with one of those big Oof. big chains, you know, across the street from your, uh, you're in a very difficult position. We did an interview with Gary Branning uh, about a year ago. He works the other side of the street. He he does a lot of work for PBMs. Um, he's an economist and he's at uh, Rutgers University. I, I like Gary a lot, actually. What Gary points out is, you know, look, you got three revenue streams available here. You've got the out of pockets, which we've now capped. As part of the IRA, it's capped at $2,000. I think that's a great thing. That's a good thing. That's a great thing, and I'm glad that's fixed. You have rebates, which means (laughs) in the radio industry in the 50s, that was called payola, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where pay to play, Mm. where essentially you're capturing or trapping a certain amount of the revenue that's being sold at the retail level, and that's going back to the PBMs. And those rebates are a substantial part of the revenue stream. And then you have the premiums and what it looks like when you start looking at these levers, essentially everything seems to be directed towards trying to keep the premiums stable and low in pricing. If you look at Medicare Advantage, it's been well under, it's been a quarter of the rate of inflation now for, you know, eight, 15, 20 years. I mean, it's just not moved much. Are we in a situation now politically 
PBMs have been keeping a bottle cap on these premium prices. And let's face it, 90% of any Medicare beneficiary at one time is paying premiums. They're not necessarily on very expensive therapeutics. It's a, it's a real small minority. Are we in a situation now where premiums may have to go up with everything that's going on? And what's the political calculus on that? Mm. This is another area, premiums, where transparency sure. is not at an optimum right now. We don't really know what goes into that to making that number. Uh, the policymakers are really concerned with keeping it low, and they have successfully kept it low or f- or flat or slightly increasing over many, many years. But this is because this is what the consumer sees when they go exactly. to ACA. The first number they're looking at is my premium. What's my monthly premium? Unfortunately, that is the market. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. And uh, the, the math is going to get hard on this pretty quick. The reason these premiums are kept low is because it's it's really a shell game and the money is being, you know, absorbed elsewhere. And one common practice, of course, is to increase co-pays sure. for the patient. Well, so they're paying the you're paying one way or the other. If you're on medications, you're going to pay higher co-pays, even for generic medicines, honestly, which should be free. We've already noted that a little while ago. The co-pays for very inexpensive generics are going up for patients. Very difficult to defend that practice, if you ask me. But uh, if you know if these copays keep going up, they're going up to subsidize lower premiums. So you have people who are sicker because they're on medicine subsidizing those who are healthy and maybe aren't on any medicines, but they're looking for the cheaper premium. So the sick subsidizing the healthy is not a good model. And Scott Gottlieb said that too. It's yeah. like that's essentially what we've built now in the current PBM Medicare model. It's the sick people subsidizing the healthy people to keep premiums down. That's a perverse incentive. Unfortunately, it's perfectly logical, too. That's the problem. Politically, is it tenable for premiums to go up in this town? I mean, you've got you got you know four four hundred people yeah. sitting in the Congress. I I don't think that's tenable. What happens? It isn't be- when every other year is an election year, <laughs> <laughs> and it's again, it's the first thing that they look that consumers look for. It's also the, one of the first things that the the members of Congress are looking at to make sure that the ACA, for example, is on target. There is no you know no good way to keep that premium flat in that position without subsidizing it from other parts where you're getting the money elsewhere from the patients or from you know, others involved in the system. If these transparency rules are passed, it's going to be interesting to see how much of these funding, funding flows have actually been passed around. I think people are going to be shocked. I really do. I agree. So you've taken over WeWork for Health at a really pivotal time, Dan, and I'm glad you have. It's great to have you here. Where do you think the biopharma sector is five years from now? Where do you think we land? Hopefully, it's not Bedford Falls, uh, as I as I laid out earlier, <laughs> or, or Biff's yeah. Casino, yeah, <laughs> Biff's Casino. Um, no, I think. Look, the 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 it will be inevitable that we will see these slowdowns in R and D and reductions in investment based on everything we've just talked about, because the IRA is going to reduce uh, overall revenue, and that's what drives development. That being said, I think this is a very resilient sector with a lot of smart people, a lot of committed people uh, who have been working for a long time uh, on behalf of patients, and that's not going to stop. It's not going away. You know, it may slow because of these issues that we've talked about. It may diminish in certain therapeutic areas, which is uh, certainly unfortunate and an unforced error, in my opinion. But I think the generic sector also will continue to, be, you know, unfortunately, be going seeing negative growth which is going to be a real challenge for that sector you know very difficult to to get any return in small molecules but i also worry that the nexus of r&d activity will continue to trend overseas and to other markets um, 
We know that China is very aggressively ramping up their you know, number of clinical trials. Asia just passed, passed North America and the number of trials that's conducting a couple of years ago, that will continue. So this is a strong signal that we're losing some of our position and our dominance in this country in, in the R&D space. That said, I, I do think the industry is resilient. It's uh, certainly, it's not going away. There are too many smart people engaged in, to make sure that it continues in a, in a good path. But uh, that's what we're trying to do here at We Work for Health is to get the story out about the, the vibrance of the sector and to make sure that the jobs are there for Americans directly in the industry and indirectly in the industry and that new, new treatments and therapies come to market. So we'll keep fighting. Dan Leonard, newly appointed executive director of We Work for Health. Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dwayne. The executive producer of the Vital Health podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.